to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's January 8th, 2020. I hope everyone had a restful and a rewarding holiday season, and we're in the first Grand Rounds of the calendar year 2020. Uh, as a reminder, we will um, um, respect our speakers' uh, time and attention, we'll keep our laptops closed, and attend to matters uh, afterwards. We have Grand Rounds next week offered by uh, Dr. Julie Balaban and Katie Shea on collaborative care uh, for behavioral health and pediatrics as part of our CHAD mini fellowship series. And we have uh, other local and then a visiting professor at the end of the month for our annual pediatric bioethics conference. So uh, lots going on. We will remount the Mount Washington Dartmouth Pediatric Conference at the end of February. So hopefully people have seen the invitation to register for that and you will be interested in joining us. And it is also as reminders and housekeeping e-learning e season. So uh, don't forget you have about two and a half months to, to complete all of that. So big welcome back. So we're thrilled that uh, Dr. Morse is going to kick off the calendar year. Uh, Richard Morse uh, obtained his medical degree with honors from Dartmouth Medical School in 1987. He went on to complete a residency in pediatrics here at Chad at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, followed by pediatric neurology at the Floating Hospital for Children at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. He started his career at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center and was the chief of child neurology at Wolfwood Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, moving to Duke University Medical Center until 2001, where he completed a clinical neurophysiology fellowship and came back home to Chad and Dartmouth-Hitchcock in 2001, where he has been ever since rising from the rank of assistant professor to professor of pediatrics and of neurology. Um, he's a dedicated member of the Geisel Admissions Committee and has always been highly regarded for his teaching abilities, uh, winning the DHMC Teacher of the Year Award in 2011 and the Saul Blattman Award in our department, the highest honor, uh, way back in 2004 and continuing to teach extensively while uh, gaining national and international reputation in epilepsy. He was awarded by the, <coughs> uh, excuse me, he was awarded by the uh, American, the Epilepsy Foundation of America, New England Chapter Career Achievement Award, and is really an international expert in Dravet syndrome that he's going to teach us about this morning. So thanks for teaching us this morning, Richard. This is the microphone, yeah, and this fine. is the advancer or advance oh, here. Yeah, do you want to advance with that? Let's here. Okay, well, good morning, everyone, and thanks again for giving me an opportunity to update you on what really is a diagnosis that's characterized my career. It was made sometime after I was a pediatric neurologist and um, described, and um, it's really been quite an interesting journey. It kind of encapsulates a lot of what's going on in medicine in general. So I hope to cover a fair bit of information this morning. And I would say if anyone has questions or something is sort of obscure, please stop me. I'm happy to answer those and carry along from there. Um, I also have a techno I technologically challenged, so I've tried to pull up a video that I hope streams. Um, disclosures are that I have been an investigator in some of the seminal Dreve trials, and I'm hope to, hoping to be one in 2020 for an oligonucleotide trial. Um, so I thought I would just start by reorienting everyone. I'm not sure everyone in this audience is 
dealing with seizures every day, so of what some of the definitional things are before we move on. So a seizure is simply defined as excessive, synchronous, uncontrolled firing of neurons in the brain. Um, they can be provoked or symptomatic, or they can be unprovoked. So they can be just a sign of brain not doing well, you've been hit on the head or you have a meningitis, or they can be spontaneous and unprovoked, as in epilepsy which is the definition of epilepsy, spontaneous or recurrent unprovoked seizures. Um, seizures are further subclassified or classified into whether they affect part of you or all of you. So there's partial seizures, which are simple or complex, simple referring to the fact that you don't have any impairment of your consciousness or awareness, complex meaning that you might be a little cloudy or not able to respond, um, but still only part of your body is involved. Uh, Generalized are the other seizure category type, and they are the standard ones that you've seen many of, tonic-clonic, clonic-atonic, which is loss of all tone, myoclonic, and absence. Um, partial seizures can secondarily generalize if the seizure propagates to include more of the brain networking. Epilepsies are classified as well. There's tables of how an epilepsy is classified, and that refers to what's known about the you have a bunch of seizures, but you may fall into a family history, a genetic underpinning, a type of EEG finding, a response to meds. So when you get someone classified as to what kind of epilepsy they have, you know a lot more and can do a lot more for your patient. Um, the concept of seizure threshold is one that's important to keep in mind in that we each have a seizure threshold. Lots of things factor into that, but that's the threshold at which your brain would be overcome in its ability to resist or prevent a seizure, and you might have a seizure. Um, that threshold varies throughout your life. So little kids have a very low seizure threshold because they are pitched towards excitement and sort of a hyper-excitatory brain because they're developing and growing. So they have a, by set, the uh, inhibition and excitation balance would be the threshold. So by set point, they have a very low seizure threshold. That's why kids have so many seizures. Um, and then there's factors that predispose to seizures and seizure susceptibility that are genetic and might have to do with your own makeup. So some people having a head injury will have a seizure, some people won't, and that has other factors playing a role. Um, epidemiology of epilepsy, it affects a huge number of people, about 2% of the population and an astounding fact that one in 26 people will develop epilepsy in their lifetime. So really a big problem. Um, febrile seizures affect up to 5% of children. It's, although it's not considered epilepsy, it certainly brings a lot of patients into your office with problems and questions and a dilemma. And some of those children will have underlying epilepsy. Um, most epilepsy, it is a pediatric disease. It, most of it begins under age 20. All of the major epileptic syndromes start in childhood, including almost all of the refractory, medically resistant epilepsies. So it's a big number of people who are affected. Um, another fact to know is that a third of people with epilepsy will be refractory to medications, no matter how many, no matter which combination. There's still always a third of people who won't respond to medications. So that, again, leads to the need for surgical evaluation if it's an option and evaluation of about a of, out of that group of a third, about a third will be potential surgical candidates.
Um, this is, again, just a graph to show age of onset of epilepsy to, to illustrate that if you look under 19 or 20, that's the majority of people. Um, epileptic encephalopathy is another important concept. Again, mostly it's age-dependent and pediatric onset. It includes some that you will recognize, West syndrome, infantile spasms, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, electrical status epilepticus of sleep, which I wish I could just say ESIS, but I always feel like I have to say what it is. Um, Landau-Kleffner, which is epileptic aphasia, and others. Uh, these are marked by developmental and functional impairments in addition to seizures. So it's not just seizures, but the child's development will be impaired or regressed. Um, with seizures really being the tip of the iceberg in terms of how this affects their brain function and, and uh, development. Um, the prognosis of the epileptic encephalopathies is really based on the etiology mainly, um, and so there's a lot of debates and symposia devoted to de debating whether seizures have anything to do with it or not. Um, but there's lots of developmental models emerging in the area of epilepsy where seizures do take a toll on your brain function, your memory, your learning. Um, uh, and Dravet syndrome is an example of an epileptic encephalopathy. So these children have so many seizures so much of the time, and their development goes south with the seizures starting. Um, so one of the main reasons I went into pediatric neurology is because of Gary Larson and his really good cartoons. Um, so Dravet syndrome, also known as SMEI, historically severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy, was described in 1978 by Charlotte Dravet, a French pediatric neurologist. And um, basically, it then was termed SMEI because obviously you couldn't name it after yourself. But later, it was renamed uh, Dravet syndrome because of the huge spectrum that subsequently was described within the core group she originally described. Um, it was historically estimated to affect 1 in 40,000 children. It's now down to one in 21,000 with the advent of molecular genetic testing and the widening of the spectrum of how children might be affected who have a common genetic underpinning. Um, the genetic basis for Dravet syndrome was discovered in 2001, so pretty recently. Clinically, uh, the classification used to be SMEI, the severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy, and then there was a category that quickly emerged called B, which stood for borderland, and these children lacked some of the features of classical Dravet, so their EG might be a little different. They might not have had the same seizure types. They might not have had as much of impairment of their development. Um, so there was this clinical group that, for all the world, looked just like Dravet, but weren't affected as classically. And then there was a disorder that emerged called GEFS Plus, which stands for Generalized Epilepsy with Febrile Seizures Plus, because as you'll learn in a few minutes, the big hallmark of Dravet is febrile seizures, prolonged recurrent febrile seizures at the beginning. And GEFS Plus was described as, again, a clinical designation running in families, and the plus refers to the fact these people would have febrile seizures till they were 10, 15, 20, 25 years old. They didn't outgrow them the way usually it happens. So at the bottom, you can see sort of the spectrum that emerged within this world. This was prior to any genetic, known genetic underpinning. Um, so I'm just going to give you a case presentation of a little guy I met here. 
Um, he presented at six months old into our PICU after a, an episode of febrile status epilepticus, which was right hemibody, so the right side, and he just went on for about an hour and a half before he got to our PICU. Um, he had normal development, and at the time, even in the PICU, he had stopped seizing. He had a normal EEG and a normal brain MRI. There was no family history of epilepsy or febrile seizures in his case. We gave him diastat and sent him on his way with a diagnosis of complex febrile seizure because it had been prolonged. He had a second episode, and note that its first episode was at six months, which is a little bit of a red flag for febrile seizures. They usually don't start before, really, a year, but they can be as early as 10 months, but six months is kind of early. Second one was at 10 months, and this time it was left hemibody. He still had a normal EEG, a normal exam, normal development. He was a normal kiddo. He had just had two episodes of febrile seizures. Um, parents immediately said they had done their research on the Internet. This was due to vaccinations and thimerosal. So they were convinced that it was, in fact, a vaccine-associated problem. Um, then they brought him in at around 14 months and said he was tripping all over the place and not really walking in a straight line. And in fact, in the clinic, he would be walking and he would just sort of falter. And he had head drops that had developed um, and was really unable to walk across a room. So we put him in for video EG at the time and found quite a different picture. Um, he then had developmental stagnation and then regression. Uh, so he went from a completely normal little guy talking, not in sentences, but appropriately for his 14-month-old, to a guy who had no language and um, was really not able to do anything he had been doing before. He would have febrile seizures every time he had even the lowest temperature in the world, he would go into a seizure. Um, here's an EEG, uh, example of an EEG done then uh, when he was 14 months old, and um, the top eight are the left side with an odd number electrodes, the even number of the right side, the Z subscript is the vertex. So you can see it's a really generalized, a generalized uh, discharge going across the boards with pre and post looking pretty normal. Um, and with these discharges, he would often just kind of drop his head. Um, so he developed epilepsy thereafter with mixed seizure types, didn't need a fever at all anymore, um, refractory to all the medications we tried on him, um, would pretty typically have status epilepticus when he got a fever. Um, so he would, at a tip of a, a drop of a hat, go into status and was having daily seizures. Parents were very frustrated with the whole situation and started to look elsewhere because I wasn't getting very far on treating him. Um, he also began to have, and this is peculiar to Dravet syndrome, I haven't seen it in other epilepsies, but he was entering the terrible twos and when his parents would say, no, you can't do that, he would go into a seizure. And we had him with the EG on and parents would chastise him and he'd go into an absolute seizure. So there's this interesting state-mediated aspect of Dravet syndrome, where uh, all sorts of little environmental things, light stimulus, being told no, emotional state, um, obviously fever, can trigger seizures. Um, also, we noted that he had this odd, uh, he also had asthma concurrently. And when he got a steroid burst from his pediatrician, 
His mother said for a week and a half he had no seizures, none, zero, none, which was extraordinary and odd. So I went back and read Charlotte Dravet's original reports, and she, in fact, reported two children who had a marvelous response to steroids. Um, so I thought that was, I didn't know then that it was Dravet, but I thought it was interesting. Later on, I went back and read this. Um, so we looked at amino acids and organic acids, and the parents sent off something to some lab in Arizona that said it was definitely mercury poisoning. And um, they were looking at, at, you know, causes of autism and all sorts of things. Um, it got pretty, pretty bad. So then we did send off the molecular genetic test, and it came back positive for Dravet syndrome. And this is the kind of report that you'll get when you send off the test. It's an SCN1A DNA sequencing test. Um, so that opened the world to a whole lot of learning about what this was. Um, so this is kind of a general scheme of how it'll go, and this is typical. There's a lot of variations, but generally in the first year, they'll start with febrile seizures and they're often prolonged. So they'll have recurrent febrile status epilepticus. If it's early and it's status, you should put your red flag up and think about sodium channel testing. Uh, they'll have normal EGs and normal development. So they don't stand out from the crowd necessarily of other kids who have febrile seizures, other than the fact it's early, early onset. Um, so it can be really reassuring falsely reassuring because family histories are often positive for febrile seizures. They're quite common and, you know, parents may have some genetic susceptibility factor uh, that relates to the sodium channel. In the second year, things really change. The development of afebrile seizures occurs with mixed types of seizures. The EEG becomes abnormal and there's a developmental regression and stagnation that is pretty devastating. Um, the seizures are of all different types. Myoclonic is the originally described, and those are massive jolts of your body or some kind of a big jerk, quick and brief. Um, but they also are really prone to having absence, staring spells, and generalized tonic-clonics. Um, there's a lot of stimulus-provoked or reflex seizures, as I was mentioning, based on state or, in many cases, light stimulation. Well, I had a little girl who lived for two years in a darkened house with sunglasses on. They couldn't take her outside. They couldn't turn lights on in the house because she had had seizures. Um, it, after they get a little older, they tend to go into the night and have nocturnal seizures. Um, and that's pretty, pretty well seen, that the seizures during the day get to be less frequent. Um, not because of your treatment necessarily, but just because of the way it unfolds. The seizures are almost always refractory to all medications. You'll have a handful of kids who will respond to this or that, but no consistent response. Um, and then, in fact, can be made worse by certain seizure medications. So lamotrigine and carbamazepine may exacerbate their seizures. These are sodium channel acting uh, seizure meds. Um, in adolescence, as the now looked at natural history, the adolescents typically get what's called a crouched gait, where they have sort of a bent knees with some mild contractures, and elements of ataxia may appear. They get a wide base, and they start to be a little imbalanced, and some of them start to have falling. Um, there's a poor developmental outcome that's the rule, um, even when seizures are pretty well controlled, and most of these kids fall into the 
moderate to severe intellectual disability category. So some interesting things have come from this. Uh, first, febrile seizures and seizure susceptibility. So all these polymorphisms in the sodium channel began to be described that would be associated with a susceptibility to febrile seizures without necessarily having Dravet or having a severe epilepsy. Um, SUDEP, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, uh, is a big, horrible sword hanging over these families' heads because within Dravet syndrome, up to 20% of kids are dead by age 20. Um, they're found dead in bed. And so, of course, their seizures are happening in the night, and there's a lot of terrified parents who are worried about this because word has gotten around in the network that SUDEP's a big risk. Um, the vaccine controversy, many of you probably are too young to know the era when in this country there was a vaccine compensation act because there was such complete crazy mania about vaccines causing encephalopathy and causing problems um, with huge monetary payouts such that the government finally stepped in and said, okay, we'll award these for the pertussis vaccine, but we'll put a cap on how much. Um, so, and then finally, the medical marijuana and Colorado migration. And so Charlotte, another Charlotte, Charlotte Dravet, the one who described this, but another Charlotte um, had Dravet syndrome with, with intractable seizures and global developmental delay. By age five, she had been on all sorts of medications and the ketogenic diet, which worked okay for a little while. Um, the parents heard about a group, the father was a PhD and was actively surfing all over the place to find out as much as he could about this epilepsy. And he found that a group in California had tried medical marijuana on their child and that it was wildly effective. So he got in touch with the, the Stanley brothers. It's apparently a family of five brothers. Um, and they were growing, this was in Colorado, which had recently made marijuana illegal. They were growing a strain of medical marijuana high in CBD and low in THC. They weren't sure why they were doing it because no one wanted to buy it. And they really didn't know what it was going to be useful for. Um, but they made it available to this family and tried it. And she had a extraordinary, almost miraculous reduction in seizures, began to walk and talk again for the first time in her life or for the second time in her life because she had been normal in the beginning. Um, so they named it Charlotte's Web in honor of her, that strain of medical marijuana. And it's been out there and among the Dravet family network, every single one of them has been using it for years, um, long before it came along and was studied in the legitimate medical profession sense. Um, and so the way they got around it was there's an old law about marijuana being illegal and hemp being grown for rope and other purposes in the U.S., especially during World War II, meant that they ended up saying, okay, if it's less than 0.3% THC, it won't be considered marijuana. It's going to be called hemp. So the Stanley brothers have been able to, periodically the DEA closes them down, but they have been able to market this as hemp oil or as a nutritional supplement and not call it marijuana. Um, so I'm, this is where I'm hoping this will work. Uh, 
Hey, Marie, wish someone had told us that there are hundreds of affordable invitations. And save the dates. And thank yous on Zola.com. You scream hashtag Alex gets marined. Shop custom save the dates, invitations, and thank you cards only at Zola.com. I, Ava, wonder if our guests would be here on time. If we had a custom wedding website. Well, we'll just Ours even matched our Zola invites. The whole thing was so freaking easy. <laughs> oh, I don't want to go to the Zola registry. <laughs> Hold on. Okay, we're just going to go with this. I'm going to close that. How do I this? Yeah, in the slide. How do I do it? Sorry, everyone. I knew what this was going to happen. Uh, uh, how about if we just try this? Okay. Oh, they can't see it. Try something. Sorry, please forgive. And then it should work. I wanted you to meet one of the Stanley brothers. You know, when I went to it through the presentation, it worked. Yeah. Like clicking on that bar. So maybe we can go back in there and click on it and it'll, it'll display. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here, is it? You have to be in slideshow. Yeah. <laughs> We're brothers that stumbled upon something amazing. It shows up here. It's not showing. Well, we're just going to skip it then. Sorry, you don't get to see it, but um, there's the link if you want to go look at it and not see the uh, Zola. Yeah, it shows here, but not over there. Does anybody know how to do this? I was trying to get them. Get it to project, but it won't. Uh... Anyway, so it's a brief video clip of the Stanley, one of the Stanley brothers talking about their experience with Charlotte. Uh, Fiji and how it just meant the world to them and so in honor of her and her great response they named it Charlotte's Web and they have a realm of caring foundation that has been uh, making uh, this available for people for some time. Okay, so uh, that was a feel-good video. <laughs> Feel, pre pretend you saw it. Uh, so then there's a other, another aspect, which is uh, not a very nice, uplifting one, called SUDEP, Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy. Um, and it's 15 times higher in Dravet syndrome than in other types of childhood onset epilepsy, where it's already a small but real risk, particularly in intractable epilepsy. And we do have a couple of it every year in our practice here at Dartmouth. So it's not completely uncommon across the boards in, in severe epilepsy. There are theories about what causes it. Um, some of them include cardiac arrhythmias because in epilepsy monitoring units, when people have a seizure, they usually get tachycardia, but some people get bradycardia unexplained, and some have gone on to have a cardiac arrest in uh, epilepsy monitoring units all recorded. Um, and this is thought to be potentially a window into SUDEP. Others have really blamed the respiratory system because when you have a seizure, there's a big outpouring 
of uh, neurotransmitters, and one of them being serotonin, actually drives your resp respirations, and it gets exhausted. And so they found in mouse models and other models that um, there won't be the same response to rising levels of carbon dioxide to trigger respirations. So um, there are theories that it's a cardiac, and there are theories that it's a respiratory death, but most all the theories include a seizure preceding SUDEP. Um, and triggering it. Um, the vaccine, as I said, this was a big, big controversy years ago, and um, a very interesting paper came out in 2006. Um, once the sodium channel was described, um, a group in Australia went back and looked at their cases. Um, so they examined a cohort of kids, and this is just interesting for the older crowd because many of you will remember the huge controversy about pertussis, particularly causing children to have epilepsy. Um, they examined 96 cases of uh, unexplained encephalopathies and found 14 of them had occurred within 72 hours of pertussis. 11 of the 14 had a sodium channel mutation described. This was you know, obviously historical, retrospective, and nobody had really systematically examined these children. Um, and they went back and found that 10 of the 11 had a Dravet syndrome phenotype when they looked at them. Um, and so some of the quotes from the paper, which was really, really amazing in its day, uh, is that this was a prolonged saga which has spanned at least 70 years and which has generated vast heat and smoke, fortunes for lawyers and witnesses, and prolonged misery for families. Um, and so they raised the possibility that many of these cases of fever-induced status or fever-induced seizures after vaccination actually had underlying them sodium channel defects. And they basically made the point that in the future, anyone suspected of a vaccine-associated encephalopathy with febrile seizures should get a sodium channel mutation checked on them um, before you go anywhere else. Um, so midway through the exam, Alan pulls out a bigger brain. Um, so the molecular genetics are really the next step and phase in this disorder. Um, I've kind of covered a lot of the clinical aspects. And the sodium channel is a voltage-gated ion channel in your cell, in your cell wall, that is essential for the generation and propagation of neuronal action potential. So you know your neurons are little electrical batteries, and they get triggered for electrical impulses to be, um, which are called action potentials. So this sodium channel sits in your cell wall and acts as a ion pore, so charged particles can go in and out of the cell and affect its polarity and affect its functioning. Um, so mutations in this sodium channel 1A, and there's about eight or nine sodium channels, so there's a lot of other ones. Um, SCN stands for the sodium channel, and 1A is there's five uh, pillars of proteins that make up this ion pore, this channel, and there are two copies of one, and this is 1A. So one of the one copies is where the mutations are lying in Dravet syndrome. Um, 70 to 80 percent of Dravet syndromes have mutations described, and you can't really exclude the diagnosis with the commercial test because the commercial test doesn't do duplications or deletions, they just do sequencing. So there's other mechanisms down below. You can see copy number variation, du 
deletions and duplications. And those account for probably the remainder of the kids who have Dravet syndrome. But you don't get that unless you call the lab and say, I know my child has Dravet syndrome. You've got to run the de deletion or duplication test. Um, I've had one, one patient who had that. 95% um, of the mutations are considered de novo. They aren't familial in that sense, and only 5% are. And in the families that have it, there's a high rate of this GEFs plus running. Um, when you look at large cohorts, the generalized epilepsy with febrile seizures plus, meaning you have febrile seizure tendency, much times your whole life. Um, it's the loss of function is seen in most of the kids who have mutations. So it's a truncation. So the reading frame is stopped and you don't get the whole protein transcribed. Um, it's always pathological if it's a truncation mutation because that, that channel won't be constructed properly and it won't work well. Um, there's a number of missense mutations and that's got a bigger spectrum. So if a missense mutation, it might not completely destroy the functioning or it might. So you can have Dravet syndrome or you can have GEFs plus. You can have something called familial hemiplegic migraine. So the sodium channels have a lot to do with functioning. You can even have benign polymorphisms if it's a missense uh, mutation. So you have to really refer to the database which has been assembled and there's now over a thousand mutations described and you can refer to that to say, is this one meaningful or not? Um, and subsequent studies have shown that this ion channel is critically important in the inhibitory interneurons and the way your brain is set up, you've got your cortical neurons and they're really the excitatory driving push for everything. And you've got inhibitory, I think of them as gatekeepers or bouncers or something. They decide what gets in and whether it gets in and gets acted on. If they're uh, disabled, basically stimuli come right in unopposed. And so you can imagine that there's a reason for the reflex epilepsy they have so that a stimulus can provoke a seizure because there's nothing to tamp it down and not overexcite the cortex. Um, the borderline group clinically uh, who, as you remember, have a key clinical feature missing. Um, at least 70% of them have an SCN1A mutation. More of them may have duplication, deletion, or something like that, but it's not really been that well studied. Um, so genotype-phenotype correlations, if the mutation is in the pore-forming part of the um, ion channel or in the voltage sensor, which lies inside the cytoplasm of the cell. So it's got this little electrical switch. If it's in one of those critical parts of the, of the channel, it's always severe Dravet syndrome. Um, if it's in one of the structural supporting parts of the protein, it may not matter as much and you might have a less severe form of it. Um, here's another cartoon of the sodium channel and there's all sorts of, it looks almost like a little Christmas picture. Um, other, other types of epilepsy listed in the different colors that are associated with sodium channel mutations. So it's not limited to Dravet syndrome, but that's the main one that involves this, this sodium channel. So then they got to work and um, basically had a mouse model where they did a knockout and they took one of the uh, SCM1A genes away. And so you have a mouse with um, either one copy or no copies. Um, and it reproduces many, many aspects of Dravet syndrome nicely. Um, they, at P20, which is day 20, for a mouse that's uh, still young, but getting up there actually, um, they would have 
heat-inducible seizures at, after day 20. Um, they would develop seizures after day 21, generalized tonic-clonic and partial seizures. Um, and they would have ataxia and premature death, usually around day 35. So it's a short life for a mouse, but they reproduce in crunch down form all the features of Dravet syndrome. And in the mouse model, they could find that the hyperexcitability of the brains were due to these GABAergic interneurons. So the GABA interneurons, which are inhibitory and sit kind of underneath the surface cortex and regulate all that comes in and out. Um, and they basically are not functioning properly. So in the knockout mouse, there's a progressive decline and inability of neurons to fire. So they take a neuron and keep giving it current, and it just sort of wears out, can't keep going. So they don't release GABA, and the excitatory neurons are not hyperpolarized, which is what GABA will serve to do through the sodium current. Uh, they get ataxia, the mice. The wild type of mice have a normal gait. Heterozygotes, so have one copy, are okay until day 14, and then they start to get a wide base and not be balanced. And the knockout have ataxia from the beginning. Uh, the Purkinje cells in the cerebellum are actually inhibitory. The cerebellum is a giant inhibitory part of your brain, and all the Purkinje cells, which are the big main drivers of the cerebellum, are inhibitory neurons. And so you can imagine in this disorder that affects inhibitory inner neurons and neurons, you'll get ataxia because you're affecting the cerebellar function. Um, so they studied those, particularly in the mouse model, because they're available and they're big and you can find the cerebellum e easily. Um, and they found that they basically had a very nicely graded uh, current in those cells that were affected. The knockout, 60% impaired, the heterozygote, so one copy of the gene, 40%, and then the wild type, 100%. Um, but they could never fire to the wild type rate. Uh, so you see basically dropout as you drive the neurons, you see dropout of the, in the knockout and heterozygote hyperpolarizing current. And as you know, seizures are this balance between excitation and inhibition in a very generic sense in the brain, and anything that puts that off is going to predispose to seizures. So why do febrile seizures happen, and why do they wait until day whatever? Um, and so interestingly, in this model, the heterozygotes at 40 degrees, they put them in a little chamber and get it to be 40 degrees. They have seizures to beat the van. The wild type, you can go up to 42 degrees and beyond. They don't really cook them, but um, they don't have seizures. Uh, at postnatal day 18, they don't have this, but by day 20, they have it. So they develop febrile seizures and susceptibility as they mature. So little kids with Gervais don't have it at birth, but they develop it. Um, and this is just illustrating some of the experiments that were done. The little graph at the bottom in the middle is probably the best one to see. The wild type are the black circles, the heterozygotes are the squares, and the knockout are the triangles. And you can see that the current density and the voltage is really quite different. Um, and this is a motor performance of the little mice. And in the middle, under C, you see wild-type heterozygote and knockout. And the knockouts are ataxic and can't get their balance and can't be held by their tail and just relax and reach for the little platform, which the wild-type and the others are doing. Um, 
So why is this age dependent? So they found that the fetal isoform diminishes over time and is replaced by the unfortunately mutated form of the sodium channel. So there's a different form when you're a newborn and infant. Um, so I'll switch now to treatment. Um, so we have the clinical description, we have the wonderful, really rich laboratory mouse model, and then uh, we're back to the clinic and what do you do for these kids? Um, standard AEDs don't work and some may worsen the situation. Uh, there's a drug called steropentol that has been available only by sort of devious means for years from Europe and we've been having it shipped in for, to treat these kids because our country didn't approve of it. Um, it's made by a little pharmaceutical company in France, and the EU already approved it long ago for Dravet syndrome, and it's the only study, actually double-blind placebo-controlled study of Dravet. Um, so that's now available in this country, approved only for Dravet syndrome. Uh, ketogenic diet's been useful and holds this situation for a little while, but doesn't last. Um, steroids, as I mentioned, sometimes have been used for when they're really out of control, having 100 seizures a day. You can maybe gain a little time with them. And then come the more modern era of cannabidiol, which is marketed under Epidiolex, um, a medical marijuana derivative, at least, Charlotte's Web and Haley's Hope. Um, fenfluramine and bromides are coming back, and fenfluramine is an old drug that is being repurposed for use in Dravet syndrome with some good success. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and then there's the genetic treatments, which is what I really wanted to talk about today mainly because it's extremely exciting and I think provides a model for how thousands of diseases are going to be approached, already are being approached, but are going to even more be approached in the near future. Um, so the big article for the drug trials that we were all, many of us were part of, multi-centered in this country for cannabidiol was published in 2017. Um, and it demonstrated to the FDA's satisfaction that there was enough of a reduction in seizures in enough children to warrant approval of the drug. Um, a certain percentage became seizure-free and that was sort of prompted by Charlotte Fiji in Colorado and her experience and many others, and I don't know if you remember, but lots of families moved to Colorado, Upton moved there to get this, you know, years ago. Um, adverse effects with cannabidiol, and many of you are probably getting pressured from your patients to use it, get it, see what it does. Many of them are probably using it from the grocery shelves. Um, anyway, but adverse effects when treating seizures were diarrhea, vomiting, fatigue, fever, unexplained fever. Um, somnolence and abnormal results of liver function tests. Uh, and so then it got approved and there's been a lot of trials and other reports rolling in. Um, and basically overall it's reduced seizures by about 50% in patients with Dravet syndrome in doses of 10 to 20 milligrams per kilo per day. The trial actually used 30 to 50 per kilo but they found in analysis that there were more side effects and more adverse effects with the higher doses. Um, so it was approved in June 2018, and it was approved for Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, one of the epileptic encephalopathies, and Dravet syndrome, and under the brand name Epidiolex. It, they did make it a controlled substance. They couldn't quite get away from being medical marijuana somewhere, but it's Schedule 5, which means low to no abuse potential. 
So it's controlled, but it's not considered something people are going to go out and get to get high or anything like that. Um, the really biggest adverse effects are, as mentioned before in the trial, appetite, diarrhea, sleepiness, fever, and fatigue. And the fever is not such that they're going into status. It's not such a high temperature. It's just a little temperature elevation. Um, generally, it's very well tolerated. Um, it is important to know that there are some things we've learned about it since it's come out. Um, one of them is the interaction with clobazam on feet. Uh, there's a desmethylclobazam metabolite of clobazam that is the one that puts you to sleep and makes you really out of it. And uh, when you introduce CBD, that metabolite shoots way up into toxic levels in not everyone, but in many of the kids. So it's important if your kid just falls asleep and the parents say, I can't wake them up, that you look at whether they're on clobazam or not, and either they have to get off the clobazam or reduce it way down. Um, and the other thing is the liver function. So uh, when the trials were going on, there were adverse event reports rolling across and lots and lots of transaminase elevation. Um, when it came out and was approved, they have a warning about that. And you're supposed to now check for it. And mostly the drug company would like you to stop the Depakote if you get those elevations. Although oftentimes I think that's the better drug. So. Um, but just so you're aware that there is some stirring up of the liver when you're on CBD, potentially. Uh, another new drug that's on its way is Fintepla. Um, it hasn't come out yet, but it's supposed to come out probably in March or April. And they better hurry because the other stuff that's coming is going to supplant many of these meds, I'm afraid. Um, and there's been a couple of phase three pivotal trials for uh, Fintepla which is fenfluramine, and some of you may remember fenfluramine was fenfen back in the day and taken off the market because of problems with valvulopathy and cardiac effects. Um, fenfluramine, as used in this dose range and for epilepsy, has not been associated. They very, very carefully followed echocardiograms and cardiology surveillance was high in the trials, um, and they have not seen any problem so far with that. Uh, so this will be coming um, for treatment of Dravet syndrome. Um, so then moving on, um, uh, this is entering the totally cool world of genetics. And I still, if I had another life to live, I probably would have wanted to go into genetics because I think it is the amazing world of understanding what happens to people. So inside the, this is by way of review, inside the nucleus, DNA transcripts are read by the ribosomes, the little machinery, and they create complementary RNA transcripts that then are transported out of the nucleus and again translated into amino acids and used to construct proteins. So that's kind of the basic scheme of how your cells make proteins. Um, and knowing this process, there's been multiple really smart genetic approaches to treating this and many diseases. Um, so in Dravet syndrome, it's been about 25 years from rodent to human and now we're getting to human trials of these things called antisense oligonucleotides. And it's basically a way of interfering with the cellular machinery and going to the level of the RNA, which is the transcript coming out to be translated into a protein or amino acids and affecting that and trying to intervene on, on that process. So they're really 
interesting. It's an interesting approach. It's sort of like micro medicine, and I'll try and illustrate how it's working. Um, this is a cartoon just showing some of the mechanisms that ASOs can have and the results. So at the top, you can see that ASOs can be designed. I think the ASO in this case is the little blue piece that goes in and goes onto the mRNA because it's designed to fit onto a transcript of messenger RNA to anneal to it. And by annealing to it, in this case, it can recruit endonucleases, so little enzymes that come in and say, this is not a good thing, and they chew it up and destroy it. So that's to destroy transcripts you don't want. So if a cell is producing something that's bad. Um, the next one in the middle is a splicing modification. So again, you can design your AnySense oligonucleotide to go in and sit on a region that normally would be spliced out and span it so that when it's read, that's skipped over or included in the transcript. And you can see you can have exon inclusion or exclusion by this means. Um, and then the last one is micro RNA targeting, where you take a um, piece of the product and you basically target a piece to have it cut out um, and then sequestered and destroyed. So there's different mechanisms whereby these ASOs, AnySense oligonucleotides, work, um, but they're all interfering with the transcription of the DNA into the cell. Um, <coughs> and this is just, a, again, a sort of busy cartoon showing how it's already in flow. And you can see kind of at the bottom, there's their early studies, and then at the top, it was spinal muscular atrophy, infantile um, SMA, Warden-Kaufman, we're already in the phase of treatment. It's been approved and it's going on. So it's the same model being used to approach various diseases of the nervous system. Um, so SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, as you know, is due to the mutation of the survival motor neuron. And um, this gene is absent in kids with early infantile SMA. And the number of copies of something called survival motor neuron 2, which is a sort of other protein that can somewhat ameliorate the effects of not having SMN1, spinal muscular uh, survival motor neuron 1 gene, uh, depends on how severe your disease is. Well, so this basically is exploiting the going into the cell and having the SMN2 gene upregulate and express more by using these AnySense oligonucleotides. And then finally, there's been actually a gene therapy approved for SMA um, through another means, putting the gene back in. Um, but interesting, we had one case of it. Dr. Ferry had a case of a little infant with spinal muscular atrophy, and um, the cost is something you don't usually think about. But the genetic treatment, not the ASO, but the genetic treatment, is over a million dollars. So. This was a Medicaid patient, and it brings up a lot of what I think at the end of the month, the ethical <laughs> discussion that's going to go on about treating with gene genetic treating and all that stuff is, is part of part of that's going to be how do we decide who gets it and, you know, what a life is worth in that sense. So this is a, a cartoon, again, showing what happens with spinal muscular atrophy. On the far left, the SMN protein, you don't have any. It's, it's mutated, and they don't, they don't make it. And then SMN2, which is a, in all of these children, is made but destroyed on the left side. The transcripts 
splice out an exon number seven. And so the product is not functional and gets destroyed. But on the right side slide, by making this little teeny ASO in the box, insert box, the blue line, um, it basically anneals to the, trans, uh, the uh, messenger RNA and prevents the splicing out of that seven. So the product is a fully functional SMN2 protein. And these kids are jumped from severe uh, Weirdening-Hoffman spinal muscular atrophy to a modified intermediate, if pretty much intermediate form of it. That's not the genetic cure, but that's the ASO approach. So uh, for Dravet syndrome, here's the kind of menu we're now emerging with. There's viral delivery of the gene itself, and that's the little cartoon of the DNA inside. Um, it's a huge gene, and so they're thinking they might have to do two different uh, infections of you with half the gene in each and hope they find each other, get back together, and then transcribe. So there's some technical problems with the genetic replacement therapy approach. On the right side of the slide is the ASO, the antisense oligonucleotide, and those are the two competing companies that are working hard on it, Stoke Therapeutics and Opco. Um, and so Opco has received its orphan drug status for its oligonucleotide, but it hasn't done anything with it, and I'm not sure what the holdup is. But Stokes has gone with this, uh, Tango which is a disease-modifying clinical trial, and it's starting in 2020, and we're hoping to be a site. We're getting the paperwork going now. Um, targeted augmentation of nuclear gene output. And this basically would increase production of the sodium, working sodium channels by changing the cell's editing efficiency of the sodium gene transcripts, so SCM1A. And that uses ASOs, any sense oligonucleotides that are specific to SCM1A, so specific to that gene, and they are able to upregulate expression of good normal SCM1A in these children's cells, um, in theory so far. And it's been successful in animals, unbelievably wildly successful in animals. They inject it into the ventricular system, not into the brain, but into the ventricle, and it disseminates throughout their brains. They have a much simpler brain. They don't have gyri or anything, so there's some issues with mouse to human. Um, but it rescued 99% of the animals from SUDEP, which would have been about 60% of them by day 35. They did not have death from epilepsy, and they didn't even have seizures, actually, and it lasted for three months or more with an injection at keeping the SCM1A expression levels, those of normal mice. So pretty exciting and pretty revolutionary. Um, so Tango is the uh, procedure that's going to be put into trial um, this year. Um, the other angle that's being really used a lot are iPSCs, and it's important to know about these. They're patient-specific induced pluripotent stem cells, so they'll take your cell and they'll de-differentiate it and make it young again and take it back to a stem cell. And um, this came out of Japan, the, the original um, means to do this. And they basically can get your profile, like your own genetic profile, unique to you, and then work with it, testing drugs, testing intervention with ASOs that are designed for your mutation. Um, and um, so they can 
use these pluripotent stem cells to either correct the problem and then inject them back in you, or to design ASOs that will go in and overcome the problem that you're facing. Um, so it's a really powerful and exciting method with genetics probably combining the two approaches. Um, so I will probably go over this pretty quickly, but it's just a very busy world in there. And a lot of cells have these natural antisense transcripts. So a lot of your cells basically make messenger RNA that's destined to be destroyed. And it's just sort of transcribing it, but it's not transcribing a useful copy. Don't ask why. But anyway, um, if you can interrupt that process by getting the inhibitory uh, natural antisense transcripts blocked, then the cell will transcribe the normal product. Um, there are these things called open reading frames that are upstream from genes, and a lot of genes have them, and those regulate the expression of the downstream gene. So an antisense oligonucleotide targeted towards that reading open reading frame will determine whether the gene is transcribed or not. Um, and I put in here a caution about Rett syndrome because Rett syndrome, in Rett syndrome, the MECP2 protein complex that controls transcription of the NMDA receptor, the excitatory receptor, is disabled and you have overexpression. So here we are opening maybe Pandora's box if we mess with the expression of genes and don't know what the effects are going to be. So far in Dravet, the overexpression or the expression of the sodium channel has not been seen to be deleterious in normal mice. So they've done the same thing in normal mice, and they can make a whole lot of it, but it doesn't seem to affect them uh, so far. So anyway, the other approach that's being taken, as I mentioned, is gene therapy replacement. And they're using mostly adenoviruses and transfections. So they'll cram the gene into the viral capsid, and then they'll inject it into you either intrathecally or intravenously and infect you. And the virus will just release its little carry load. It's sort of like a little missile, and it releases its load. Um, and there is a company that has a vector capable of restoring sodium channel to its normal expression. And this is thought to be or anticipated to be a fall 2020. So I'm going to conclude here and say it's been a very fascinating 40-year uh, journey from clinical observation to molecular basis to genetic interventions. Uh, it's a really great model of translational medicine and also cooperation because it couldn't be done without thousands of people in lots of labs and other places working on this. Um, lots of questions remain as to whether repleting this will make the kids have normal development or what will happen with other functions of the brain if you restore this. Um, and so disease modifying or curative, stay tuned for the next chapter. Thank you very much. And this is, again, related to the grand rounds coming up. Uh, I thought it was really something that we'll be having a lot to talk about. Anyway, any questions? Yes. One question, one question probably. <laughs> um, yes, Charlene. So I uh, was wondering about with the mechanism of CBD oil and why with Charlotte Fiji, she had this miraculous recovery, but now it seems like... It's not so great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, nobody knows. Obviously, there's a lot of in individual variability, and the mechanism is not known. 
It's basically um, thought to work on the endocannabinoid. There's an endocannabinoid system in each of us, but that's what THC works on. And CBD is supposed to work on the red blood cell and peripheral system, and they have no idea how it works in terms of epilepsy. Um, yeah. Then fluoramine is thought to work by an adjacent receptor altering its function. So it may be that CBD is altering an adjacent receptor near the sodium channel. I think we are at time that we would like Dr. Morseback maybe in two years to update us on the Tango trial. Yes, okay, thank you. <laughs>